All right. So before I get to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, if you'll give me about three or four minutes, I'd like to say a few things to kind of uh, get our hearts and our minds ready for what we're about to read. First of all, we are in the middle of a sermon series titled The Intro to Christianity Sermon Series. The purpose of this sermon series is twofold. Number one, we want to simply lay down some of the foundational truths that our Christian faith is built upon. The book of Romans is possibly, at least in this preacher's opinion, the best New Testament book that systematically lays out the foundation for our faith. And so that's why we've chosen Romans to study uh, for an intro to Christianity course. In fact, what we're about to get to this morning is, in my humble opinion, possibly the most important piece of all uh, when it comes to learning what it means to walk in spiritual victory as a young Christian. The second thing that we're doing is not only studying the foundations of our faith, but I'm trying to do the best I can to teach us how to study the Bible. And so you'll notice that in the notes section of our app, rather than notes that are specific to what I'm teaching on, there are notes that I typed up that are basically some tips on how to study the Bible. And my goal is that for, for you to see that about 80% of what you learn biblically, you are capable of learning on your own with good practices in Bible study. And that the resources, the Word, the Bible itself, it's that you have most of them at your fingertips. And if you'll, if you'll know how to study and you'll be disciplined to study and you have a few good commentaries to help you answer some questions that you don't, you might miss while you're reading, you'll find that 80% of what you learn, you're capable of learning yourself. And that is a super important thing to learn as a Christian. You're going to find that there's about 20%, and we're going to probably see that this morning, where you need a pastor to help kind of provide additional light to certain passages. It's not most of them. I would argue that chapters 1 through 5, which we have studied so far, almost nothing that I taught, would you have been able to discover on your, on your own? When we get to chapter 6 and 7, I think you're going to find, hopefully, if God helps me this morning, you're going to find why you need a pastor and that there are certain things in Scripture that are a little more difficult to understand, and it helps to have somebody whom God has called to be a pastor, whom God has equipped to deal with these types of texts. And so with all that said, we're going to start in chapter 6 and verse 1. And what I want to do is I want to like maybe a 60-second helicopter view of chapters 1 through 5. Because if you were here the first few weeks, here's what you know. Context matters. And here's what you know. The Bible wasn't written two or three sentences at a time. The book of Romans is a single letter with one big cohesive point or set of thoughts. And it is best understood if we read it that way, instead of trying to just hone in on two or three verses and rack our mind on what do those two or three verses mean. Instead, if we read the whole thing, we see there's this cohesive thought. And so here is the cohesive thought that Romans chapter 1 through 5 communicate, and then we pick up in verse 1. Here we go. 
pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. Here we go. Chapters 1 and 2, we learn that we're all sinners. Chapter 1 deals specifically with the people of the world, Gentiles, non-God-fearing people. Chapter 1 says they're without excuse. Even they have consciences and the, the limit, the, the degree to which they are willing to sin is clear evidence that even the people of the world know what they're doing is wrong and they do it anyways. Nature testifies to God. There is an inherent understanding in the, in the hearts of people that there is such a thing as a moral right and a moral wrong. And even though these same people don't necessarily believe in maybe the God of the Bible, nature testifies to a creator. And the fact that some of the sin they're willing to do is so grotesque, so far out there, they are without excuse. And when God judges them, God will be righteous in doing so. Then you turn the page to chapter 2. And we find out, well, those who know about God and those who know the Word, they're not in any better shape because they actually know what God has said, and they still sin. And so the big conclusion in chapter 3 is, it don't matter what part of that group you're in, you're in trouble. We're in trouble. The whole world is guilty before God. There's nobody not one person on any side, anywhere, that has served God truly from their heart, flawlessly, all the days of their life. We are all sinners. We're all guilty before God. And therefore, we need a solution. That solution is uh, provided for us in the middle of chapter 3, where the letter advances. And it says, but now God has introduced to us a righteousness that comes through faith. And we begin to see that the answer to our need has been provided through Jesus Christ. There's almost this pause in chapter 4 where the writer says, just consider something for a moment. It's really always been this way. Even Abraham was not saved by keeping the law. Abraham, the father of our faith, God credited his faith to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't keep the law. Abraham wasn't sinless. Abraham wasn't a perfect man. But the Bible says that he believed God, and God credited him for righteousness. And so the insinuation is, hold on a second. If you take a, letter, a better look at the book, from the very beginning of Genesis, God has been teaching us that true salvation simply comes by faith in him, by believing him, and believing his word and obeying his word. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we are introduced to God's answer. Why God is just in, be, in forgiving, offering us forgiveness. And that is that through Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. That His blood was shed for our sins. And so God is righteous in declaring us righteous because of what Jesus did. And then in Romans chapter 6, what we're about to start up, the... the the answer is, the, the, the follow-up is, so now what? So you had a problem. You were a sinner, hopelessly destined to hell. God created a way for you to be saved. You now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So what do we do now? And the clear implication is, there should be a way that you live. There should be a way that you as a Christian are different. 
And so with all of that, now our minds are kind of focused into the, the direction of the, the lesson, the direction of what Romans is teaching us. Let's start in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let's pause. Here's the question. Here's where it came from. If you weren't here at the previous uh, lesson on Romans, here's what's going on. The argument was made that even though we are great sinners, God's grace is bigger. And that God's grace is sufficient, was sufficient, will always be sufficient to cleanse us of our sins. And in that, it demonstrates God's righteousness. It demonstrates how good God is that His grace is bigger and stronger than your sins. So here's the rhetorical question. So if God's grace is elevated because His grace was able to cover my sins... Does that mean that if I just keep on sinning more, that His grace is even elevated greater? It's a very stupid question. But that's the question that's being posed here. It's a rhetorical question. Should we just continue sinning? That way God's grace is elevated? Well, the answer in verse 2 is, by no means. Absolutely not. And now we begin to move into this practical truth that there is a transformation that happens for true Christians. Let's look at it. Now he asked the question, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pause there. We now have a new word introduced into our Christian faith. One of the foundational truths. You'll see the word baptized used there. And it says not that we were baptized by water, but I quote, we were baptized into Christ. So what does that mean? Baptism is a, is a pretty important word. And you need to understand that according to God, when you are born again, when you are saved, at that moment you are baptized into Christ. It is also true that He is baptized into you, that the Holy Spirit comes into you and changes you. Baptism is a pretty difficult thing to explain. Uh, spiritually. I'm going to give it a go here in a moment. But I want to acknowledge that when you read on a little bit further in Romans chapter 7, it might be 6, the end of 6, but Paul says this, I am speaking using human terms. In other words, like I'm trying the best I can to explain a deeply spiritual truth using human words, but I acknowledge human words only go so far. So baptism it is a word that means to be immersed, but it's deeper than simply to be immersed in something. It, it, it has this connotation to be immersed in something that becomes part of you. And I'm going to give you an example. It's sort of like a cucumber that becomes a pickle. 
When you take a cucumber and you put it in vinegar, the cucumber remains. It's not like it changes shape. It is still a cucumber. However, what it is baptized in and what it is surrounded by permeates it and forever changes the substance of it. It's still a cucumber, but it'll never be what it was before because it has been baptized in that vinegar. In a similar way, so it is when we are baptized into Christ. He is not simply surrounding me. He is in me. And because of that, it changes me. I still look the same. I still have the same name. I still have the same voice. There's still a lot about me that's very similar, but I am not the same because I've been baptized into Christ and the Holy Spirit has permeated me, has taken permanent residence inside of me, and therefore I am forever changed. It's an example of baptism. Now, what's important to note is that we are baptized, notice it says, into Christ. And so, when God looks at what took place on the cross, He sees you inside of Christ. Because you are baptized in Jesus, into Christ, when God chooses to look at you, He must do so through Christ. And therefore, when Christ died, I died. The punishment that Christ died on my behalf, God sees me in Christ and sees that part of me dealt with through the cross. And so the question then is, how can I go on sinning? How can I go on continuing this life of sin knowing that I was baptized and I am in Christ? And the rhetorical answer is you can't, you shouldn't. That's the clear implication of the text. Now, I want you to notice a few other important words on in the text. Let's start in verse 2. How can we who died? Would you agree with me? That is a past tense set of words. It's not something that's happening. It's not something that will happen. It is something that has happened. We have died. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, again, it's past tense, it's done, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Verse 4. We were buried. Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. According to God, this act of being baptized into Christ is a past tense thing for the life of the Christian. Now, later, I will deal with Paul, the same writer of Romans, saying, I die daily. But let's just put that off to the side for a moment, and let's understand we're dealing with the old nature here. And in dealing with the old nature, the nature of sin, according to God, this is done. It's dealt with, baptized, past tense, buried, past tense, 
crucified. Past tense. It's already done. Now, I'm going to introduce a statement. It's very important for us to begin experiencing the victory that God wants us to experience over the old nature. So here's the statement. Facts, faith, feelings. And in that order. We have to know the facts first. Then we have to have faith in the facts. Then we have correct feelings. But that's not where most people start. Most people start with, well, I'm a Christian, but I sure don't feel like the old man's dead. You will never feel like the old man's dead if that's where you're going to start. What I want you to do is I want you just to start with, as hard as it's going to be, I want you to start with the fact that according to Romans, the old man is dead. I don't care if it feels that way to you. I don't care if you agree with that or not. What, 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 agree with it you know, in, your, in your own practical living. What you need to do is simply acknowledge, do I believe that Romans chapter 6 says this is a past tense thing and that the old man has been crucified with Christ? Do I believe that or not? Does that say that or does it not say that? So I have to start with that. I have to know what the facts are. And you will find that if you look for the facts anywhere other than the Bible, that your life is going to be in disarray. If you're trying to determine whether or not the old man is dead by doing this, looking inside, you're going to find he seems to be very much alive. But if you'll stop it and you'll believe God and you'll see your old man where God says your old man is in Christ, crucified at the cross, if you'll look away from you and you'll look up to Jesus and you'll see that you were baptized into him and you'll see him on the cross, you'll know that's where my old man was dealt with. The young and childish Christian says, but when I look inside, stop, 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 and stop. You were never supposed to look inside. It's all about understanding you are in Christ. And you will never have spiritual victory until you are in Him. Let's read on a little further. Verse 6. For we have been united with Him in a death like His. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might not be brought to nothing, or might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let's pause there. Here is, I've said facts, faith, and then feelings. Another way of saying that when we look at our text is we first have knowing, you have to know. In verse 6, I have in my Bible underlined the word know. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Not because I feel it. Not because when I look inside, the old man doesn't seem to be anywhere found. I know that the old man was crucified because God said so. Now, for me as a young Christian, this was a really hard thing to wrap my mind around. Because what I felt was like the old man was very much alive. 
And I was faced with a conundrum. In my experience, and when I look deep inside, the old man is very much alive. But then when I come over here and I read this verse, it says the old man is dead. Which one am I going to believe? For most Christians, they choose to believe what they feel. And as hard as it was for me to do, I had to settle it in my mind and in my heart that somehow, some way, I'm wrong. That what I feel is wrong. And even though in experience, it seems like the old man is very much alive in my life, my experience is wrong, my feelings is wrong, they have to be wrong because God says this, and I'm telling you folks, if you don't know that, you will never get to the next phase. We must know. After we know, we're going to see comes reckoning, comes considering. And then finally, presenting ourselves to God to be used. We're going to try to get through those things this morning. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pause. I'm going to share with you um, a testimony of my own that will help shine some light on this passage. The first five to seven years that I was a Christian, I constantly, on one hand, questioned my own salvation. And it was odd because, I mean, I was all in for God. I was at every church service. I wanted to be holy. I was serving in everything that I could serve. I was doing everything I could do. But every time that I would have wicked thoughts, every time that I would have bad desires... I would think to myself, how could you possibly be saved? If you really loved God, how could you have that thought? And then I would go through this cycle of intense shame and intense guilt, and I'd do everything I could to try to beat it out of myself in one way or another, and it simply would not go away. And so I had what I would call a hyper-focus on the old nature, I was constantly looking inside of myself and seeing that there's this part of me that still desires what is evil. There's this part of me that still wants to sin. There's this part of me that's very selfish. There's this part of me that's very angry at times. How can I be a Christian? I dealt with that for a long time. And what was terrible is that I never had anybody teach me the things I'm trying to teach you now. So I had to figure it out on my own. And I had to do so silently because I was terrified. If everybody knew what was really going on in my mind and my heart sometimes, everybody would disqualify me for ministry. So I'm like, I can't even talk about it. And I tried so hard to kill the old man. I didn't believe the old man was already dead. Mine was very much alive, and so I was trying to kill the old man. And I learned something that I have probably never seen stated better than in the second of the Chronicle of Narnia series. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene in the Prince Caspian movie where they're trying to turn Caspian's heart back to the evil side. And he's considering it. He's considering giving up, right? It's too hard. 
And in that scene, it's a very dark scene, and there are two very evil creatures that are surrounding him. And uh, one of them says this, I am hunger. I could fast for a hundred years and not die. The other one says, I am thirst. I could drink a riverbed and not burst. I don't know that I've ever heard a better statement to explain the old man or what the Bible also calls the flesh nature. Now, I personally had not tried drinking a riverbed, and I mean that figuratively. I'll explain what these two things mean here in a moment. But I had tried to fast 100 years and kill the old nature. And I'm not saying this to brag about me. I'm sharing a testimony of what does not work but this is a fact of my life. I spent two consecutive years early in my faith where I don't believe I ever went one single week without fasting a full 24 hours every Tuesday. But the motive behind it was trying to kill the old man. I was super aware that there was still a part of me that was very evil, very wicked, and that I had no control over it. And by no control, I don't mean that I was running off and doing sin. I mean by I'd be working, I'd be having a good day, and then my coworker would do something stupid, and I'd think to myself, what a stupid idiot that guy is. And then all of a sudden, I'd deal with guilt and shame the rest of the day, sometimes two or three days in a row, thinking, who are you to have a mind like that? What's wrong with you? Why don't you love people like God loves people? Why are you so quick to be that way with people? And I would just absolutely tuck my tail in shame and feel like the worst person on the planet and I would honestly and sincerely think to myself, are you even saved? Over a thought. Because I had the false belief that if I was really saved and I really loved God, I would never think those thoughts. And so I tried to fast them away. I went almost two years without a TV in my house so that I would never let anything go across the screen that could possibly in any way entice myself to sin. I did it all. And I'm telling you something. You can fast for a hundred years and the hunger of the flesh will still not die. Now, the other side I've never done, but I know people who have. And that is, well, if I'm not going to fast from it, I'll just get as much of it as I can. I'm going to scratch that itch until it goes away, and I'm going to feast upon everything that I want until I don't want it anymore. And that person finds out you could drink a riverbed and not burst. That is the old nature. That is the flesh. And you will find it is an exhausting life to spend your whole life somehow trying to deal with your flesh in one of those two manners because it doesn't work. So I spent years thinking, well, I must not even be saved. I didn't want to talk to my friends about it. I remember honest confusion because I knew that I loved God and I wanted to serve God and and, and I knew that was true. And I remember being confused because All of my other friends didn't seem to have the same concern I had. And I'm not being arrogant. I'm just telling you as a fact, none of my friends had the devotion that I did. None of my friends were fasting every week of their life. None of my friends got the TVs out of their homes. 
I heard the conversation that many of my friends had, and it wasn't, it wasn't pure, it wasn't right, the things they joke around about. And it was like, I remember thinking to myself, I know they have to have the same thoughts I have, but we can't talk about it. Because what if they don't? And what if I'm not really saved? And, and so I just internalized this, and I lived through torture for many years. And this is one of the things that is so important for young Christians to understand. I'm going to put it out here simple. When you get saved, God gives you a new nature. That does not mean that he destroys the old nature. You get a new nature. You get a new heart. But that does not mean that the old man ceases to exist. And this helps us begin to understand what takes place in Romans 6 when we talk about the old man being dead. I'm going, to, I'm going to jump to Galatians 4. We don't need to go to it. You can just trust me. Galatians 4 is a real verse, chapter, and verses in the Bible. You can go read it later. But in Galatians chapter 4, the same theory is dealt with when it talks about Abraham. How many of you guys remember that Abraham was given a promise and that God would give him a son? And that there, this son would be the, you know, the son of promise. Well, Abraham and his wife get beyond the age of childbearing. His wife says to him, apparently God's not going to come through on what we thought, and so you should just have a child with our handmaid. Abraham steps outside of God's will. Abraham tries to bring about God's will for his life through his own mind and through fleshly, earthly ways. And so Abraham has a son with the handmaid, and the son's name is Ishmael. Biblically, Ishmael represents the flesh. He is the son that is born first. And when you read Galatians chapter 4, it talks about this. And what it says in Joplin's plain English, here's what it says. So long as Ishmael was the only son, there was no problem in the home. Everything was fine for the most part. But when the son of promise was born and Isaac came forth, Isaac's mom said, get that slave child out of the house. And it is a picture of what happens when a person is born again. There used to be only the flesh, only Ishmael. No conflict in the home. Yeah, I've got a conscience, and yeah, my conscience sometimes is telling me not to do the things I'm doing, but no, no real true major conflict in the home. But when a person is born again, and all of a sudden Isaac comes to life, and the son of promise is born in my heart, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in me, residence in me I have a new nature, and they hate each other. The flesh, the Bible says, wars against the Spirit. And so now there's conflict. And one of the problems of young Christians and one of the problems that I had the first several years of my Christianity was I believed if I was really saved that Isaac and Ishmael were going to be best friends and they were just going to skip down the road with hands held high to praise God. And I had to come to realize that's never going to be. They don't get along. One is the son of the flesh and one is the son of promise. 
And so what happens is now we're introduced to this concept that the old man, the Ishmael in me, is dead. But when I look at my experience, I'm like, but he's not dead. And so I want to introduce an important concept. It's going to take you a little time. You have to meditate on it. You have to go home. You have to talk about it and say, well, is that really right what Pastor Joplin said? Take some time to look at it yourself. Go to the Word yourself. But here, here's, the, here's the concept. Biblically, death is never the end. Death changes the relationship. Biblically, nobody uh, ever ends when they die. Death is literally the portal from one place to another. The first time we see death introduced in the Bible was when God told Adam and Eve that if you eat of this forbidden fruit, on that day, you will die. Well, according to our version of the word die, we would look at that and say, but they didn't die. Yes, they did. You have to understand first and foremost that biblically the Bible says that Jesus is life. God is life. So death is to be cut off from life. Death is to be cut off from God. This is why hell itself is called the second death. That's what hell's called. That's one term used to refer to hell. Isn't that an interesting concept that somebody lives forever in the second death? It's an important thing to understand that biblically, the word death, it does not mean the end of something, but it is the absolute changing of relationship. It is the cutting off of, so when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they died in relation to their connection with God. Changed everything. It was never, ever the same after that. And they, as a result, they physically died hundreds of years later. Death did come into the world. But even when Adam and Eve, along with all of humanity, physically died, they did not cease to exist. Neither do when people die do they cease to exist. Death becomes the portal. Understanding that helps properly apply these words, died and death. The old man is dead to me. Notice, uh, we, we read it, but notice as well the words dominion. I think we read, yeah, we did. I got, did I read through verse 11? No? Let's start in verse 7 and read through verse 11. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, again, past tense, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die. Again, death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we have now the idea of dominion. We're no longer slaves to sin and no longer has dominion over us. The old nature is no longer who I live for and who I live to. One way of saying that is the old nature is dead to me. It does not mean he ceases to exist, but now we have been cut off. And here's what you'll find about the old nature. 
The old nature is a liar. The old nature wants you to believe that you are still under his control. You are not. And what I have to learn to do is I have to learn to believe God. And when that old nature raises its ugly head, I have to learn to, you know, basically look it in the eye and say, you are dead to me. You have no power in my life. I don't live for you anymore. I live to God. I live for God. And so you no longer have power and dominion and authority in my life. Shut up. And I've got to go on down the road. And you might find you have to have that conversation a time or two with the old man in your life each day. I would argue that conversation is sort of what Paul's talking about when he says, I die daily. But the rec- I have to recognize God sees that part of me has already dealt with in Christ Jesus. And so if I don't know that, As a young Christian, if I don't know that, I'll spend my whole life focusing on the old man and trying to fast him to death, trying to feast him to death, trying to do whatever it takes to get rid of him. When God says, in essence, you've been cut off from him. He's dead to you. Ignore him. I will never forget the moment in my life. It was a turning point in my life, and I knew that I'd hit a turning point when I got a hold of this. I was on my way to Haiti. We were, I was on a plane, and, you know, honestly, the couple weeks leading up to it were like great weeks. You know, the weeks, they're just where, where you've got all your Bible study in, you've got your praying and your fasting done, you're feeling really close to God, you're like ready for mission, you're spiritually minded. I, I was in that particular place. I'll never forget, I was there. I mean, I was thinking spiritual thoughts. I was on the plane thinking spiritual thoughts, ready to land, thinking about ministry. Something happened on the plane. And my mind, like that, thought one of the most evil, wicked thoughts. And this is when I knew I was changed. I literally laughed. It wasn't like this weird, super loud, everybody around me, like, what's that guy laughing at? But it, I, it, I laughed, like, enough that noise did come out of my mouth. Like, it was like, <laughs> and this is what I thought. You are super wicked. Thank God that you don't rule my life anymore. You are not who I am. I am am a new man in Jesus Christ, and you're dead to me. And then it was like, move on down the road. And I remember that experience in my life immediately after. I'm like, dude, you got it. You got it. This is the spiritual path to victory over the old man. He is dead to me. I don't, I don't identify with him anymore. That's not part of me. That is not who I am. That is the old me. You know, another way that you, know, you might find this funny, but I'm just telling you the way Joplin Emerson has had to try to wrap my mind and my heart around these things. Another way that I see this visually is I, I picture my old nature, the sinful old me, as a prisoner behind a set of iron bars. And in Joplin's mind, the iron bars are like old 1990s, you know, like uh, bigger, bigger spaces. It's just the way my mind sees it. I've, I've, I've visualized it for years. And this prisoner is my old nature who once used to rule me. But now I rule him. And he has no more authority in my life. He has no dominion in my life. But I want you to get the picture. 
most of the time when you guys are around, he shuts up and he stays on the bench like he should. But it's when you're gone and it's just me and just him that he gets up and starts rattling that cage and says, hey, hey, let me out. You hold the key. You can, you can do this. Let me out. Sometimes when I'm like, no, shut up. Sometimes he tries to get forceful. He tries to use that same voice in my life that he used when he was my master. And he tries to get in my mind and my psyche and say, I still rule you. You're not any different. You're not changed. You'll never be different. You'll always be the same. Open the door. And I have to know on the authority of the word of God You are an evil, wicked liar. You have no dominion in my life. You are not even who I am anymore. You shut up. You are dead to me. And I have to turn away and realize I live to God and I live for God. Amen. If you don't know this as a young Christian, you'll experience what I experienced with years of shame and guilt thinking, Well, maybe I'm not even saved. Here's the irony. This conflict is the very proof I am saved. I mean, that's what was so weird about it. And honestly, I'm not going to lie to you. I was frustrated. I was angry and upset when I discovered the truth that I'm telling you. And the reason I was angry was because I spent almost six to seven years of my life living in shame that God did not want me to live in because nobody taught me this stuff. And it made me mad. I couldn't believe how much I had suffered as a Christian and how much I had questioned my own salvation when in reality, the very fact of this dual thing going on was the proof in and of itself. I was not the same person I used to be. And so if there's any good thing about that internal conflict, it is the proof. It should give you this assurance The Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and because of that, there is a good, holy nature that despises this old stuff. It's also important as a young Christian to learn these things, because if you don't know that this is how it works, you'll think to yourself, well, I might as well just give in to it. I'll quit my sinning when that voice goes away. And you come to the altar over and over and over and over and over again. Sometimes you say, God, if you'll take this voice away, God, if you'll remove this old nature, God, if it'll just cease to exist, then I'll never sin. That's not how it works. And I've seen people run off into sin and just embrace sin and try to drink a riverbed because they think to themselves, well, I might as well if the voice doesn't ever go away. No. You've got to recognize as a born-again Christian that you have a new nature and you need to yield to the new nature and you need to listen to God and you need to follow God and you need to just say no to the old man. The other reason that this is a really important truth is that if you don't understand what I'm telling you, you will begin to cut yourself off from ministry. Let's look at let's look at what should follow, and then we're going to close with this idea of presenting ourselves to be used. Let's read verses 12 through 14 and finish there today. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present yourself to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Look at this term. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under the grace. So, here we have it again. On one hand, the old man has died. On the other hand, we're told that old man, sin, will not have dominion over you. So we see it's about relationship. He no longer has dominion over me. He's dead to me. And as far as God's concerned, that part of me is in Christ. When I was baptized into Christ, that part of me was crucified with him. And so it doesn't matter what I see or think or feel. God says that's how he sees it. And that's all that matters is how God sees it. Now, notice those words, so present yourselves to God. I want to close with this thought, and then, and then we'll pick back up next week. You have to know, right? We're talking about facts, faith, and feelings. You have to know, it says, know that the old man is dead. Why? Not because I look inward, not because I don't hear his voice. The old man's dead because God says he's dead because he was crucified with Christ. And so God sees, I have to know that. If you don't know that, you'll never get any further. And then you must consider it so. Like you have to reckon it so that this is done. And then comes presenting yourself to God. Here's what you're going to find. If you don't get a hold of what I'm telling you, you will almost never present yourself to God to be used. You'll think to yourself, well, I have, just like I did. You know, I had these negative thoughts. I feel this way still. There's a part of me. I can't control it. I'll just be sitting there, and this bad thought will come to my mind, and I must be a horrible, terrible person. So until that changes about me, I, I can't really serve. I can't be used. I can't preach. I can't teach. I can't do this. I can't do that. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Think to yourself, you can't present yourself to God. You can if you understand that the old nature's already been dealt with in Christ. I want to close with Christ. I want you to start to realize how it's all about Christ. Not just what we've already discovered in the weeks before. Not just that His blood atones for my sins. But that His crucifixion also deals with my old nature. Like it's dealt with. Like God's plan is 100% full, 100% complete. There's nothing that He left untied. There's nothing that's undone. There wasn't a T that wasn't crossed. There wasn't an I that wasn't dotted. God's plan is so perfect and so, so complete that if I'll look away from me and I'll look to Christ and I'll realize I was baptized into Him, He has been baptized into me. It is all and only because of Him that God sees me as righteous, and because of Him and Him only, I can say, God, here I am. I present myself to you to be used. You take one step away from that, and you look inward to see if you can present yourself to God, and you'll start to find you don't feel worthy. You start looking inward to see if the old man is dead you'll feel like uh, he's very much alive. 
But you learn to stop looking at you and start looking to Christ and keep your gaze on him focused. Do not turn to the left. Do not turn to the right. You will realize every provision for everything you need to be in right standing with God has been, has been, it's done, it's finished, has been accomplished through Christ. And the only thing that matters is can I say with certainty, I'm in him. And when I can say that with certainty, I know that my sins have been dealt with through the blood. I know that my old nature has been dealt with through the cross. And I know that because of Christ and Christ alone, I can present myself to God to be used. This is such an important topic. I'm going to go ahead, Chris, if you guys would come. This is such an important topic. This understanding how to walk in victory that there are two complete chapters in Romans dedicated to it. And we're going to go through it all. It might take one more week next week. It might take two weeks to get through it all. But this is such an important topic that Romans continues to expand on it. It gives us a look at it from another angle. And then a look at it from another angle. And then it closes with kind of the conclusion of what the Christian life looks like in this internal struggle. And so there are some things I probably said this morning you're going to have to go home and like meditate on and think on and spend some time studying. But know this, when we, when we return next week, we're going to continue with this thought of living in victory over the old man, what it means to walk in the new. We're going to, we're going to hit it from every angle that Romans hits it from. And we're going to drive this point home that true spiritual victory comes from knowing who I am in Christ staying focused on him alone and trusting in his provisions because I am baptized into him and he is in me.